Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you have your Bibles today, I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to two different passages of Scripture. One is in the Old Testament, the other is in the New. In the Old Testament, please turn to Isaiah chapter 59, Isaiah chapter 59, and then in the New Testament to Luke chapter 18. Luke 18. And maybe if you're here today and forgot your Bible in your car or, hey, it's a vacation weekend, a holiday, and so your mind's just not completely there this morning when you were coming in, that's okay. The words will be here on the screen in just a moment uh, as we turn there together. Uh, This morning, we continue on in a sermon series here at Crosslink called Unhindered. And we're looking at what it means to live a life unhindered for the Lord. Uh, We understand this morning that the Bible tells us that eternal life, salvation is a gift that is received by faith. The very moment you believe in Jesus, that he died on the cross and rose again from the grave, the very moment you confess Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life, in that moment of faith and obedience, you receive God's gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life. That is a wonderful truth. In that moment, you're forgiven and cleansed. In that moment, you are changed and you become a brand new creation, the Bible tells us. But just because you received the gift of eternal life doesn't mean that every day forward from there, you live the abundant life that God has called us to live. In fact, there are many times, even as Christians, we can live our life uh, defeated, discouraged, disheartened. We can even at times be in such a place of despair that we don't know what to do over a given situation. And so in those moments, frankly, our life is hindered. We're hindered from living in the victorious life of Christ that Christ offers to all who are his children. And so over the course of this series, we're looking at some of the things that the Bible show us will hinder us in our relationship with God. So far, we've seen three things that hinder us. We've seen the hindrance of disobeying God's word. We've seen how we are hindered in our relationship with the Lord when we have conflict and division with one another. And last week, we saw specifically how doubt will hinder us. Instead of living by faith, if we live with doubt, we've seen very clearly how that will uh, limit our growth and limit our uh, effectiveness for the Lord. Today, we come to a fourth hindrance, and that is the hindrance of unrepentance. The hindrance of unrepentance. The reality is, is that God wants us to live a life where we are repentant of our sin. In fact, there is no way you can have a relationship with God. There's no way that you can walk in victory. There's no way that you're going to have the peace of God in your life that surpasses all understanding without there being repentance. And so God begins to show us in these passages of scripture what a repentant life looks like. How do we know it's genuine and how do we know it's sincere When is it really just an outward action of an empty facade? I believe God has much to say from Isaiah 59 and Luke chapter 18, the hindrance of unrepentance. If you're physically able to do so this morning, would you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? We're going to begin reading in Isaiah 59 and then flip over to Luke at 18 in just a little while in the message. So Isaiah 59 verses 1 through 3, here's what God speaks through the prophet Isaiah. Behold, 
The Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. Verse 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken falsehood. Your tongue mutters wickedness. Let me open us in prayer. Leave your Bibles open as you flip to Luke 18 when you're seated in just a moment. Father, we do love you and we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your word. God, we understand today that it is your word and therefore it has authority in our lives today. I pray, God, that you would open our hearts to truly receive what you have for us today. Open our ears to hear the truth. Open our eyes to see the things that you would have us to see. God, I thank you that you are a gracious and good father. I thank you that you are able to save and you are willing to save all who will come to repentance. And so God, I pray today that our hearts would be open to that and that you would speak to us in whatever ways are needed today. God, help us to hear and to see the things that we need to hear and see. And may you get the glory for it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated this morning. The hindrance of unrepentance. The reality is there are many things in our life that can hinder us from living the life that God has called us to live. Even the Apostle Paul understood that, of course, as many times there are things that he even wanted to do for the Lord, and yet he would have to write and say, but something prevented me, something hindered me, something deterred me from accomplishing that which I wanted to accomplish. Even to the churches in the region of Galatia, he would write to them in Galatians chapter 5, verse 7, and he would say, you were running well, you were doing good, you were living for God, and you were honoring him and all that you were doing but then he sadly also had to say, but something hindered you. And so he asked, who hindered you from obeying the truth? There are many things that can prevent us from living the life that God has called us to live. Today, we come to the hindrance of unrepentance, the hindrance of unrepentance. I wonder this morning, even as we open God's word together, that simple question would be this. Have you repented of your sins? Has there ever been a time in your life where you understood that you were a sinner, that by that meaning we're saying that we've done something, we've thought something, something has happened in our life that we knew was not right, it was against God's will, and yet we did it anyway. Has there ever been a time where God convicted you of that and you repented of it? Now, the word repentance means literally to turn away from something and to turn to another. Repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change in action. In other words, there's a conviction inwardly, and so it's like we're going one direction. We're doing our own thing, living our own way, fulfilling our own fleshly desires and lusts, and in conviction, we turn from those things, and instead, we turn to the Lord to receive his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy. Repentance is a change, an inward change, that results in an outward Action. I was reminded this week of an old, old sermon illustration, a humorous illustration about what repentance perhaps might look like for some. And the illustration is told of a young man by the name of John who had a fascination with birds, specifically with parrots. And so one day, some buddies gave John a parrot for his birthday. And he was so excited. He got the parrot. He received it. He took it into his apartment. And he was excited about learning from this bird. But 
It didn't take him long to realize that this parrot had a very articulate vocabulary. In fact, the parrot had, had great articulate uh, abilities to speak, but there was a problem. It seemed like most of his words were negative and were wrong. Frankly, he had foul language and many times was just completely inappropriate. And so John took this bird in and he began to think, how can I change this bird? And so he determined, you know what? If I just say positive things to this bird, the bird will change its actions. So for a month, he said nothing but positive messages. But a month later, he realized there was absolutely no change at all. And so John began to think, well, what else could I do? And so he began to think, well, maybe if I play encouraging, uplifting Spirit FM music, that will change the outward appearance of this bird. And so sure enough, he played Spirit FM every day for a month. But a month later, nothing changed this bird's vocabulary. Finally, one day, in absolute disgust, the bird had had another big spell of inappropriate language, and John was just in absolute dismay. He went over to the cage. He grabbed the parrot. He shook the parrot as much as he could, not knowing what else to do. He walked into the kitchen, and he saw the freezer in front of him. He opened the freezer door, threw the bird in, and slammed the door. For three minutes, that bird squawked and hollered and said all sorts of profane things. Finally, the bird stopped. Not a word was spoken. Not a peep took place from that freezer. And John began to feel bad about it. John thought, well, maybe I hurt the bird. And so he opened the freezer door and he put out his hand. And as soon as he did, the parrot walked onto his hand. And the parrot said, sir, I am so sorry. I understand that my language has been rude. My actions have been inappropriate. I repent of my wrongdoing and I want to change. Please forgive me. And John thought about it for just a moment. He was amazed at the change that had radically taken place in the life of this parrot in such a short instance. And as John began to question why and how this could happen, the parrot continued on. By the way, sir, might I ask, what did the turkey do in the freezer? <laughs> Isn't that like us? Like things go bad. We see these consequences, all these different things. And now all of a sudden I'm ready to change. No, repentance is an absolute inner conviction. It's this inward change where we change mind and therefore there's a change of action. By the way, God calls all of us to repent. Jesus said it this way. The very first message Jesus ever preached in his ministry was this. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. By the way, Peter, on the day of Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the very first word of his message was, repent. No wonder the Bible would tell us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God desires that all of us would turn from our sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah chapter 59, we begin that passage, verse 1, with a powerful word of promise. God's hand is not short that it cannot reach you to save you. There is no distance to which God can't reach to redeem someone and to save someone, to forgive them and to cleanse them, to make them a brand new creation. God can reach to any extent. There is no person that God can't forgive and change and make them a new creation. There's not a single person. In fact, Isaiah tells us in verse 2, there's not even a single person that God's ear would be dull to hear, except, verses 2 through 3, those who refuse to repent. 
You know, it's interesting in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah wrote 700 years roughly before the birth of Christ, and yet Isaiah spoke, the primary theme of his book is that God is gracious and God is good and God is sending his son as a savior into the world. All throughout the book of Isaiah, we see Isaiah writing and speaking and saying, the Savior's coming. God's going to give grace. God desires to forgive. God desires to cleanse. God desires to heal. This is what God desires to do. But the sad sub-theme to the book of Isaiah is the rebellious nature of the people to turn away from God and to reject his offer of grace. Well, it's in that context that we now turn to Luke chapter 18 as we see a very simple and yet powerful example of what repentance should look like in our lives today. You know, it's interesting to note that Isaiah spoke about repentance and about how if we sin against God and if we just harbor that in our heart and life and don't repent from it, literally it causes a separation, a barrier between us and God. Interestingly enough, that's the same exact thing that David believed and understood. In Psalm 66, verse 18, David said it this way. He said, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not even hear me. In other words, if I continue in my sin and don't repent of it and turn from it, God's not even going to hear what I'm saying, my prayers. It shouldn't be a surprise to find that even Jesus addressed the issues and the hindrance of unrepentance in Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. If you turn there with me, I would appreciate it. The words would be on the screen as well. The Bible says it this way. Jesus gives us an illustration. He gives us a parable, which is a, a word picture, if you will, to paint for us a picture of a spiritual truth. Here's what he said. Jesus told this parable to some people, key statement, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Here's the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Verse 14, listen to Jesus' conclusion. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This pastor scripture, Jesus gives us a parable to paint a picture of really the importance of repentance. And I think it's interesting in this pastor scripture that the Bible tells us Jesus gives us a picture with two people, two people who came to the temple to pray. Now we understand from this that these guys had very little in common. The things they had in common is that they came to the same temple and they came with the same purpose and ultimately it seems anyway to talk to God in prayer. But apart from that, they didn't have a lot in common. The Bible tells us the first man was a Pharisee. He was a very religious man. He was a very well-known man, a man who was greatly respected by the people of his day. But then we also learn about this man who's a publican. A publican in that day was a tax collector. And as you can imagine, he was as much loved and appreciated as the tax collectors of our day, okay? He was very well-known, just like the Pharisee was, but he wasn't known for good things. In that day, a tax collector typically, yes, they received taxes for the government, 
but they were also commonly known for charging higher rates than even the government required, if you can imagine that for a moment. And so what the tax collectors of that day would do is they would charge a higher percentage. And when people would pay the excess, they would take the excess and pocket it. They did this especially to people who were poor and people who were in, in situations where they needed help instead. They were basically robbing the poor people of the culture. So he was well known, but not for good things, if you will. Jesus said both of these men came to the temple to pray. But how they responded in prayer, the heart of their prayer, the attitude behind it made all the difference in how they left. So this morning, as we think about this hindrance of repentance in our time together, I want us to see three quick observations about repentance from Luke chapter 18. Three things. If you're ready to learn, would you say, I am? Glad you're with me this morning. Three things. Number one, I want you to consider the problems of repentance. The problems of repentance. When I say the problems of repentance, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with repentance itself. I'm simply saying that there are oftentimes things in our life that presents problems. They present hindrances. There are things in our life at times that cause us to not repent of our sin. Now, the Bible tells us very, very clearly that we should all repent. That was Jesus' message. That was Peter's message. That was Isaiah's message. That's what Jesus is ultimately getting to in Luke chapter 18. But the reality is, is that we all need to repent. Not just because this is what God desires. We all need to repent because we have all sinned. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 simply says it this way, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's every single one of us. That means I'm not perfect. That means you're not, you're not perfect. By a show of hands, let me ask you, how many of you ever at any point in your life have ever told a single lie? Just at one point in your life or another, you've told a lie. How many of you just told your first lie by not raising your hand? Okay. We've, we've all lied before, I would imagine. Uh, how many of you at some point in your life, you have spoken something that you knew when you said it wasn't 100% true. I mean, it might have been like 99.9, but you knew it wasn't completely accurate. Have anybody ever done that before? That's right, we, we've done that. We've all lied. I would imagine we've all thought things that we, haven't, we shouldn't have thought before. We've all dwelt upon things. I, I, remember even, I remember even as a child stealing something. You're like, Pastor, what does that make you? It makes me a sinner, that's what it makes me. I knew better when I was doing that. And the Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. So who needs to repent? All who have sinned. The Bible tells us this Pharisee comes to the temple and he begins to pray. But it's in his prayer that I believe we see several things that often hinder us from truly repenting of our sin and turning to the Lord. So three things that I believe present problems for this man and often present problems for us. Number one, I think a major problem for repentance with this man and with us is what we'll simply call self-righteousness. If we see ourselves as righteous in and of ourselves, I'm right, I'm good, I haven't done these things wrong, we will not repent of our sin. Now, we see of this Pharisee that he goes to the temple. Hey, that's awesome. He goes to the temple to pray. That's even better. And then he starts out his prayer good. He starts off, God, I thank you. Now, I don't care if this is the first time you've ever been to church or if you've been to church a million of times before. This is a great way to start your prayer. God, I thank you. We're told all throughout Scripture that in everything we're to give thanks. This guy starts off his prayer well, but then it quickly goes downhill. 
Because he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like everybody else. In fact, in two verses of scripture, he uses the word I five times. He's so consumed with himself, so consumed with his abilities, so, so consumed with his merits and his own experiences, his morality, his good deeds, the favor of God that he apparently thinks he's earned. He's so consumed with himself that he does in that day were a very uh, well-respected people. In fact, uh, as we know, God had given some commandments in the Old Testament. And, and frankly, the people, the Pharisees, were so caught up in their righteous works that over time, they began to add their own laws and their own ideas, their own opinions to it. By the time Jesus was walking the face of the earth in the Gospel of Luke, they had 613 commands by which they governed their life. Can you imagine? Someone's like, oh, I stand for the Ten Commandments. They stood for 613 of them. Top that, Okay. They had a long list of to-dos and a long list of not-to-dos. And so based upon his actions, based upon his goodness, if you will, he assumed that he and God were completely fine. Because from his perspective, he had an appearance of things being right. In his mind, frankly, as he looked at other people, as he looked at the actions of other people, as he looked at how pagan they were and how bad they were, he looked at himself and said, oh, I'm doing pretty good. I want to remind us this morning that when we stand before God one day in judgment, we will not be judged based upon what other people around us were doing, how they lived or didn't live, how we stacked up to them. So often, if we're not careful, even in the context of, of a worship service or in the context of living for the Lord, it can be easy for us to look down at others as if they've done all these terrible things, but I'm good. And on the flip side of that, there are times where we can look at other people that have been living for the Lord for a long time and we can put them on a pedestal as if they are perfect and as if they are God. And, and at times we can even develop an inferiority complex where we think, oh, I will never measure up to that. I can never be as good as that person or whatever the case would be. The Pharisees seemed to be focused on others, so he prayed, God, I thank you. I'm not like these swindlers, the unjust, the adulterers, or even like this tax collector. In other words, he was focused on his own self-righteousness. Oh, God, I'm praying to you. I'm talking to you. You get the impression he walked into the front of the church that day, the front of the temple. He's, he's puffing up his chest. Oh, God, I thank you that I'm so good. I'm so amazing. God, I thank you that I'm, that I'm living so good for you. I'm not like this cheat over here, and I'm not like this thief over here. I'm not like the adulterer over here. And thank God I'm not like that tax collector. That's how he's praying. The point is, is that in his own self-righteousness, he does not see his need for repentance. It's not until we recognize our need for repentance that we actually do. Or in other words, another way to say that is you won't repent of sin if you deny its presence because you can't turn from something that you deny. The Apostle Paul concluded in Romans 3 verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. In and of ourselves, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all need God's grace. And that's why Isaiah said in his day in Isaiah 64, verse 6, that all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. This man was unwilling to repent because first, he was blinded by his own self-righteousness. Secondly, he was unwilling to repent, frankly, because of his religion. His religion. 
This is the reason why he had righteous works. In fact, the Pharisees were the group of people who said, we are the true ones who know God. We are the true ones who love God. We're the true ones that know God's word and they did everything they could to keep it as well as to enforce it upon the people of their day. They became very much a legalistic bunch. So they did all that they did under the claim that they were doing this for God. It doesn't matter to me whatever your religion is. Religion, no matter how well-meaning or how we're adhered to, will never bring someone to a place where they repent of sin and turn to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Religion looks at you in the midst of your sin and says, all right, you, you recognize your sin, you recognize there's a problem, great. Here are all the things you gotta do. The Pharisees had that. In fact, we see that in the man's prayer in verse 12, because now he begins to focus not on what he's not doing, but now he begins to turn to, God, look at all the great things I am doing for you. So what did he do? Verse 12, God, I fast twice a week. Sounds good, doesn't it? Fast twice a week. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't want to fast twice a week, but he was proud to do it, okay? He's abstaining from food for the purpose of prayer and self-sacrifice and focusing on God, supposedly. Now, the Jews in that day all fasted at least one day out of the year on the Day of Atonement. One day out of the year. One day out of 365 days. But for him... He fasted twice every single week. That's how religious he was. And if that's not religious enough, look at the next thing, verse 12. I pay tithes, he says, of all that I get. Now, in Matthew chapter 23, we see an illustration of this. We'll turn there in just a moment. But in Matthew chapter 23, we began to see some of the things that he might have tithed with. For example, everything that he received, he gave at least a tenth of. So corn or oil or cattle or herbs, everything. A tithe literally means a tenth. We even practice that today here, biblically recognizing that there's a biblical pattern and a biblical principle of giving your first fruits to God. A tithe literally means a tenth. And I would say there are some today who had that same conviction. We still give to the Lord cheerfully and generously, and we begin our giving with that principle of giving a tenth. But he doesn't just say, I give a tithe. He says, I give a tithe of everything I get. Most of us can't say that today. Even those of us who are devoted maybe give a tenth or give even beyond that at times. Most of us, when we receive gifts at Christmas and birthday times, we don't tithe off of those gifts, do we? Maybe we do. Uh, this past week, our dryer, our electric dryer in our house went kaput, bit the dust, right? I've been trying to keep this thing alive and salvaged for years and years and years, and it finally decided to give up the ghost this past week, okay? I'm about to take it back outside this afternoon and shoot it and bury it. But anyway... I had a budget for replacing this thing and the Lord blessed us with an incredible deal. Literally, I only paid about a third of what my budget was. Well, do I tithe off of the savings of that? I hadn't really thought about it until right now as I'm preaching. Maybe I should, right? Very few of us could say we tithe off of all we get. But this man's praying and he's talking to God. Now, now picture the context for just a moment. Very few of us would brag about ourselves in this way, even to friends, Right? Like, I might brag with you about the glory days of high school sports and how amazing it was, you know, and all other stuff, and those stories kind of get exaggerated through the years anyway. But typically, I'm not going to be talking to my friend and saying, look at how much I fast, and look at how much I get. We're not going to do that. But this man is so blinded by his own religious activity that he's bragging and boasting to God. 
God, look at all that I do for you. Aren't you glad that I'm on your team? Why is it that sometimes when we actually do the things that honor God, we act as if God owes us something? His religion blinded him to his need of repentance. And so I'd say thirdly, the third thing that often hinders us, and really what it boils down to, is I would say rebellion hinders us. Rebellion hinders us. You know, I think about this context of religion, of him not needing repentance. You get the impression that he felt like he and God were close. Like there was nothing to repent of because frankly, he was religious and he was good. There were all these good works and, you know, he was in church and he was praying and he fasted and did all these different things. And so he felt like he was fine. Can I say to you that I believe in our culture, especially, there are many times we're the same way. We put our confidence in our religion. We put our confidence in our religious works. We put our confidence in all of our background, and and we think we're fine with God because of all these outward things. Sometimes you ask someone, well, are you a Christian? And they'll say, oh, absolutely, I'm a Christian. So I'll ask them the question, well, when did you become a Christian? And the answer will be something like this. Well, I've always known that God was near. Okay. Well, 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 you know, like when I went through that difficult time 10 years ago, like I know I'm a Christian because God just really helped me through that difficult season. Okay. Well, well, well I know I'm a Christian because, I mean, my, my mama drugged me to church from the very moment she knew she was pregnant. She took me to church every Sunday and we were there all the time. And so I've just always been around Christian people. Okay. Well, I'm a Christian because my grandfather was Billy Graham. So my point is, is that this man thought he was right with God because he was close to godly things. But without repentance of sin and believing in Jesus, there is no relationship. There's just an outward form of religion. But the man didn't understand it because, frankly, of the rebellious nature of his heart. The Bible tells us in verse 9 that Jesus told them this parable, but it says this, he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Oh, we're good. We, we Look at what we've done. Look at all the good things. Look at our merit. I mean, this is amazing. They are trusting in themselves. And the rebellious nature of their heart, the Bible says that the man was praying, but he didn't even realize he was merely praying to himself. His heart was so rebellious, he had missed it. The point that Jesus was making with this man is that because of the Pharisees, they were so caught up in all their outward activity and all their religious movements that they were focused on the outward appearance, but God was looking at the heart. Turn for a moment to Matthew 23 or turn your attention to the screens. Matthew 23, verses 23, listen to what Jesus said to this same group of people. It's sobering because because he wanted us to understand God sees beyond the actions. He sees the heart. He sees the thoughts. He even knows the motives in our actions. Listen to what he says Jesus does in Matthew 23. It's powerful. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Why? For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. 
You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, he says, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he says, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside you appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That word for lawlessness literally is also translated rebelliousness. They're rebellious. Their heart was rebellious, and therefore they didn't see the things that God was truly wanting them to see. I'm convinced this morning if we focus on our own self-righteousness, if we are content in our own form of religion, if we harden our hearts against the things of God, we too will remain unrepentant. But the second thing I want you to see from Luke chapter 18 is simply the picture of repentance. What should repentance look like in our lives here today? We'll close here in just a matter of minutes, but what I think God is wanting us to see from this picture is how the publican responded to the things of God. Because I believe God gives us through the tax collector, the publican, a powerful picture of how we too should repent of our sin. I think there are three things present that we see from this man in verse 13. The first thing we see from the publican is that when he came to God, he came with personal remorse. Personal remorse. We see that in verse 13, the Bible says, the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast. What we see here is a personal remorse. There is a deep conviction and shame. He knows in this moment that he has sinned. He knows that he has done wrong. He knew that there were things in his life that were not pleasing to God. There was no denying it. There was no hiding it. There was no excusing it. There was no covering it up. No, he understood there were things in his life that were not right between him and God. So he stands at a distance away. Frankly, he feels unworthy to be there. He feels unworthy even to talk to God. In the place of such a religious man like the Pharisee, he doesn't even feel worthy of bringing up a prayer. There's conviction and shame, but there was also humility. He was unwilling to even lift his eyes. Such conviction that he had. We don't read of his pride. We don't read of his arrogance. We don't read of his excuses. We simply read of his humility that in his brokenness, he was unwilling to even lift his eyes to heaven. John Flavel, writer of old, said it this way, those who know themselves cannot be proud and those who know God can't help but to be humble. That's where the tax collector was. Not only do we see his personal remorse, we see his personal responsibility. When the Bible says that he beat his breast, this is not a Tarzan impersonation, okay? This is not a self-inflicted wound like he's hurting himself. This is the sign of a man, frankly, that is so burdened and so grieved emotionally. I think he's distraught as he's realizing the weight of his actions, as he's realizing his, his sin, as he's realizing the, the issues in his own heart and life. He's overcome with emotion and he, he can't even get the words out. And so the picture of beating your breast is a picture as if he's to say, God, it's me. I'm the guilty sinner. I'm the one who's done wrong. It's like the apostle Paul who said, oh, wretched man that I am. There's a godly sorrow that's in his life because he knows he has sinned against God. 
2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 and verse 10, the apostle Paul calls all who have sinned to a place of godly sorrow. It says it this way. Paul says, I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. Verse 10, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. This man has a godly sorrow over his sin, which leads him to a personal request. Notice what he asked. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You know, it's amazing. The tax collector, his prayer didn't have a lot of deep theological argument to it. His prayer wasn't alliterated with all the points started with the same letter. It must not have been inspired, okay? His prayer wasn't very long. His prayer was simple. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I want you to notice first how he admitted his sin. He didn't say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, I'm one of the many sinners here in the room at this moment as if to make himself feel better about his sin. He said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You know, it's amazing the difference between the Pharisee and the, and the tax collector. The Pharisee came and he was focused on others. And because he was focused on others, he said, man, I'm doing pretty good. God, I'm doing all right. I'm so thankful I'm not like these people. But the tax collector, he was only focused on God. And because he was focused on God, he knew the reality. He knew the seriousness of his own sin. And he said, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He's in essence acknowledging, God, I may be the only sinner here today, but I know I'm the sinner. And then he asked God for mercy. God, would you give me mercy? Mercy is undeserved compassion and forgiveness. God, I know I can't earn it. I know I don't deserve it. God, you don't, I don't even deserve for you to hear me right now in this moment, but God, would you forgive me? And God, would you be merciful to me? The third thing we see as we close is we see the promise of repentance. Verse 14, Jesus tells us something interesting, doesn't he? He says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. What does God do with the prayers of repentance? What does God do when we are honest and humble about ourselves and our sinfulness and our weaknesses? What does he do when we bring these things to him to turn from sin and to trust him? I believe God does exactly what we see here with the tax collector. David said it this way in Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The Pharisee came in his pride. The Pharisee came in his contentment. The Pharisee came ultimately to be respected by men and to be applauded by others. The tax collector, he came on to repent of his sin in hopes that he might be accepted by God. And the Bible tells us in verse 14, this man left justified. It means that he left forgiven and he left cleansed. The Pharisee left fooled. He thought everything was fine between him and God. But the tax collector who came repentantly and honestly, he left forgiven. 
The, the Pharisee, he left that day completely condemned, completely lost in his sin. But the tax collector that day, he left cleansed and made a brand new man. The reality is this morning is that we so often get caught up on how we came to the place. What were we driving and what were we wearing and what did we sing and what was the outward appearance? But God is most concerned about how we leave. Do we live, leave forgiven or do we leave fooled? Do we leave cleansed or do we leave condemned? You know, as I was thinking through this message today and thinking through this powerful picture of repentance and coming humbly and, and honestly, I was reminded that several years ago now, our youngest child, Lane, she must have been about four or five years old, I remember one specific day that she had gotten in trouble. And the reason I remember this so distinctly is because there had been times in her life where I'd had to correct her. Something had happened and, and I knew that she was the guilty party. And so I told Lane, Lane, I want you to go to mom and daddy's room and I want you to sit in our room and think about it for a little bit. Now I have to be honest and confess that I let it be about 10 minutes because I wanted it to really soak in before, by the time I got to the room. And I remember going back to that back bedroom and sitting down with Lane and and kind of looking at her eye to eye, and I said, sweetie, what happened? And she began to tell me what happened. And then as she told me, I asked her, I said, Lane, why did you do that? And I'll never forget, as she began to process and understand her actions, what she had done, like the innocence and tenderness of a child, that bottom lip began to quiver I mean, she just began to quiver and the floodgates came and she looked down and she, she was just under such conviction. And I said, Lane, is there anything you want to say? Daddy, I'm so sorry. I don't know. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And I said, Lane, would you look at me? And I remember that sweet, sweet spirit that she has. She was so broken in that moment. She wouldn't even look up at me. And I say, honey, look at me for just a moment. And she wouldn't do it. And so finally, I remember taking my finger just like this and putting underneath her chin, and I lifted her chin to look in my eyes. And I said, sweetheart, I love you, and I forgive you. I forgive you. And I remember then in that moment picking her up and sitting down in the chair that she was sitting in, and she embraced me with like the biggest, longest bear hug her little arms had ever given. It felt like an hour. I kind of wish it was still going on right this moment. You know what I mean, as a daddy? And there was such a sweet embrace in that moment. And we walked out of that room. We walked out of that room laughing and carrying on and cutting up. She experienced that day the joy and the freedom and the peace that comes with being forgiven. The reality is this morning is that we all need that freedom and that joy that comes from forgiveness by God. But the only way that will happen is if we look to him, repent of our sins, and trust him. Two people came to the temple that day. Only one left forgiven, and it was the one who repented. Today, I don't know all of our names. I don't know all of our backgrounds. I don't know all of our stories. But you know, I'm convinced that still today in 2019, there are two types of people that have come here today. 
There are those who will come and just outwardly go through the motions, having a certain appearance to be kept up around them. There are some that would even look and say, oh, you know, my life is good. God's been good to me. Look at all the good things. I'm thankful I'm not like some of the other more difficult situations in life. But then there are others that will come and will recognize the opportunity that God has given to repent of sin and to be right with him. Jesus said, two men came to the temple. One, le- one man left forgiven, and it was the one who took time to repent. This morning, you have an opportunity. Don't put it off. Don't miss it. You have an opportunity to turn from your sin and turn to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this morning now, this afternoon. Thank you for the what you're doing in our lives. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to hear your word. God, I thank you that we don't depend upon religion with a bunch of rules of of regulations. We've got to do all these different things to to be right with you. God, we we all fall short. We are all incapable. We can't be righteous in and of ourselves. But God, I thank you that you don't tell us what to do. You show us where the work was already done. You point us to Jesus who died on the cross for all of our sins and rose again, just like the Bible says. The only thing you call us to do is to believe and confess him as Lord. And so God, I pray today where that is needed in our life. I pray that we would not excuse our sin. I pray that we would not hide it. I pray that we wouldn't just go through the motions and and, and not really take the time seriously. But God, that as you bring it to mind, we would repent of it and turn from it. Have your way in our hearts right now, I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.